Hey there, it's Joan Green, and you are listening to Navigating Two Worlds, where we are truly blessed to spend time learning about the complexities of interracial families. This show is designed to support an incredible community of women married to Black men who love deeply and are driven to make a positive impact within their homes and beyond through education, conversation, and love. So let's get started. Hi guys, I'm so glad you are joining me for this conversation. Our guest is Dr. Sarah Gaither, Assistant Professor of Psychology and Neuroscience at Duke University. She herself is biracial, and much of what she does in her work focuses on how various social identities influence our behavior and attitudes with an emphasis on biracial experiences. And I am so grateful for her time and can't wait to um, talk a little bit more with her. So Sarah, welcome. Thanks so much for the invitation to be here. Absolutely. So why don't we go ahead and jump in? I think where we have been able to start in this podcast is just with our our stories. And so what I would love to know is um, your story of being biracial throughout the phases of your life, how you have adapted to navigating race from identifying as you know Black biracial to even needing to defend kind of who you are. And then maybe we can touch on how your parents were a part of the process and who else maybe played a role in that. So why don't you kind of give us your story um, and we'll start from there. Yeah, that's a lot of questions. So um, it's a lot. (laughs) uh, um, Yeah, so I do identify as biracial black white, even though for those of you listening, if you are not Googling me right now, I look pretty much like a white person. So I think that's an important context for all of you to sort of know about how I identify the experiences that I've had. Um, I think for me being a biracial black white individual, I have a black dad and a white mom. My parents are still married. Um, They did a really nice job, I think, raising me and making sure that I was aware from day one that I was lots of different things, that even though my skin tone really only reflected one part of my background and my heritage, half my toys were white, half my toys were black. I was actually raised more by the black side of my family than the white side of my family just because they happened to live in Sacramento, California, which is where I grew up. Um, And so I think for me, it was really that experience of Growing up in an interracial household, uh, I have a younger brother who looks much more stereotypically biracial than I do. Um, Seeing how he was socialized differently, right, was these other kinds of cues on what it means to have certain skin tones or facial features or things of that nature. And all of that experience combined is really what ended up motivating me to want to study biracial identity and biracial experiences and really just race relations more broadly in the United States. Um, you see firsthand how differently my dad and my mom are treated every time we went out to a restaurant or a grocery store. Um, But for me, looking as white as I do, it's been difficult to constantly sort of prove to people my blackness. Um, I carry around a family photo in my wallet every day to sort of (laughs) highlight, oh, look, my dad's a real black person, as people like to call him, um, meaning he's not light skinned, right? He's an unambiguous black man. Um, So I think those are things that were frustrating growing up. And it really wasn't until I got my faculty position at Duke that I think I really felt very comfortable about who it is that I am, how it is that I look. Um, and I've accepted the fact that the privilege that my life has brought me looking as white as I do, I do have the abilities to speak up on behalf of those who have remained voiceless over the years. Um, so it's some way I've sort of tried to empower my own biracial identity. Yeah. And I love that. I think, um, 
doing with what you have, right? Doing the very best with what you have and being able to empower yourself and to share with others um, that there is an understanding and there's a learning that needs to take place. And um, we were talking a little earlier and I, I saw this, I saw you first reading an article um, from today.com that you wrote, and it is really all around that, all around reconciling your, your duality and understanding who you are. Um, you gave some of those examples in the article that you just shared, and even one where you kind of had to defend your father, felt like you had to defend him, even as a 10-year-old a girl. Um, how did that feel growing up? I think it's hard, right? When you're a little kid and you know, you're supposed to be protected by your parents and your parents are the ones you're supposed to make you feel safe. But race is just such a powerful indicator and predictor of how certain people are treated in our society. And so when I was younger and my dad would experience things uh, because of the color of his skin, me looking white, I actually had more power in some instances, even though I was a 10 year old kid in order to speak up and to do things um, differently. And that's, you know, a power dynamic that I don't think most people consider. I think for any of you who have biracial kids at home, it's this question of you are a monoracial person raising a mixed race kid, and you don't always know what issues they're facing um, and what powers and flexibility options they have too. And I think for me growing up in that type of household and in that type of environment, it caused me to be a really flexible thinker to be able to perspective take in ways that I think people who aren't growing up in as diverse environments, they just don't have as much practice doing those things. Right. And I think your parents give a really great example of allowing you to see those situations. I know I've talked to women who are in biracial marriages with young children now, and they they don't take them on those car rides, or they don't want them to see that their father has been treated this way, or they try to really I want to say protect, but I think as moms, and we'll talk about your being a mom in a minute, um, I think that that protection sometimes leads us to not allow for that, um, that, that type of thinking that you're discussing. So I think one, one thing we want to share with people is embrace that, let your children see it, help them navigate it is what I'm hearing you say. Yeah. I mean, it's really important that we're not raising anyone to be colorblind, right? There's, Um, this, this terminology, colorblindness is studied a lot in psychology and sociology. And it really, on the surface level, it sounds like a good idea. You treat everyone the same, right? We should treat everyone as equals. But when you are colorblind, you are directly overlooking all of the systemic forms of racism or sexism or whatever the ism may be, because we know that these social constructions, unfortunately, predict horrible outcomes for some groups in our society. And so by hiding those experiences from our kids. I mean, there are age appropriate ways to do these things, of course. Um, It doesn't prepare them for the types of questioning or denial experiences they're going to face later on. Yeah, I agree with that totally. So let's circle back to where you are now. Um, Of course, we all want to know how you met your husband and tell us how your family's reacted because you're yet again in an interracial marriage, which I think is super exciting. So Yeah, yeah. So my husband and I um, met actually the end of our sophomore year of undergrad. Uh, We both went to UC Berkeley. Uh, So go Bears to anyone who's from the Bay Area. (laughs) Um, We were both in fraternities and sororities, actually. And so there was a a Greek party and we happened to meet each other at that. And neither of us, I think, really thought of anything at the time. But, you know, he was the nicest person I had ever, ever dated. And uh, 
eventually he met my family. He is one of the whitest people. So he's very white. The stereotype of white, tall, skinny hipster man is really what he is. Um, mm-hmm. you know, that though very proudly. He loves his bicycle, all of those things. Love um, so I think, you know, my family, because they're in an interracial relationship, thought it was totally fine. They had no racial expectations on who I would be dating or not dating. And I have dated people from other racial and ethnic backgrounds before him. Um, but now here we are married, you know, years and years later, we've stayed together that whole time. And um, I think what's been nice is just sort of seeing how instantly accepted he was by everyone in my family. And I think the reason that is, is because when I was born or when my parents were pregnant, there were people on both the white and the black sides of my family that I guess were not very supportive of the fact that they were in this interracial relationship. They were going to have this mixed race kid. And so they knew firsthand, again, that denial and that questioning, right, of having a kid who's mixed. And so who were they to be to question someone I was dating? Right. right. Oh, my gosh. That's amazing. So you guys have been married. And now I'm making this big announcement like you don't know it. But I'm so excited for you guys because you're expecting twins this summer. So congratulations on that. Thank you. Thank you. Welcome. When you think about now kind of that that next generation, right? So what you just spoke to, your parents didn't want to have you guys feeling this way or impose those things that other people imposed on them. You have that opportunity to do the same. So what do conversations with your husband look like when you discuss race as it pertains to your babies and parenting? Yeah, I think, you know, for someone who studies biracial experiences, I highlight, I really, really strongly care about diversity and exposure for young kids. Um, People ask me a lot about critical periods and when to expose kids to people who look different. And, you know, it starts within the first three months of life. We know babies actually start forming biases and preferences for certain racial groups over the others, just on how they look by eight, three months of age. Um, And so knowing those things as as a psychologist, the things uh, Matt and I talk about a lot is, you know, how much diversity we can have in the the books that we have in our playroom and uh, making sure our friend networks are as diverse and as representative as possible, Um, nannies, teachers, those things, because that exposure to people who are different is what any research would say is the best way to raise a kid that has racial empathy and really, again, can have those same perspective taking abilities that I had growing up. Right. Yeah. And you can never have too many resources. And the thing is maybe different than when my children were growing up or when you were growing up, there, there is so much more available, the toys, the books, all of the things. It's phenomenal. Um, the resources that we have at our fingertips now. And I think, um, even one thing you had mentioned in your article is the word biracial really wasn't a a key word when you were growing up. So just having that word to, to jump, you know, to springboard off of, I think is important, but, um, certainly the resources out there are endless for us. Yeah. You really just want to make sure your kids have a sense of belonging, right. And whether they claim the word biracial as their own identity or not, um, it is a new, more talked about identity option, even though mixed race people have existed forever in the United States, right. Since slavery, they've always been around. Um, but it's been interesting that it wasn't until the year 2000, right, that we were even allowed on the U.S. census to mark more than one racial box. So it is still a relatively modern U.S. shift, right, in acknowledging this as a a racial or an ethnic group. Yes. And so when I was raising our children, or my husband and I were raising our children, um, we had them before 2000. So they're in their 20s, uh, mid-20s. And that was one of our biggest concerns is what do we, what do we, 
check off which box and then how do we guide them through picking? And that was such a big conversation. And of course, in 2000, like you said, um, that had changed, which was was really a great move. A um, lot of steps since then, for sure. So one of the other things that we talk about in our group is our husbands. And I, my question to you would be, um, how does your husband support you during this time when racism is such an elevated conversation? And then how do you kind of support him in helping him continue to learn? Obviously, it is your career path and it is what you study and know. So it might be a little easier. But when you think of somebody who may not have the educational background that you have in psychology and diversity, um, what does that look like in your home, just supporting each other in this in this conversation? Yeah, I think we're a, a unique case study in that he's also a nerdy PhD holder like I am. <laughs> I love that. He, he's an economist. Um, so he studies very different things than I do. But I think because we are both academics, because we both love research and science and discussing kind of the, the nuances of different findings in our respective fields, uh, we have a very open dialogue right on uh, certain papers he finds in economics related to race and ethnicity, for example, that he'll send me and then I'll sort of put my psychology spin on it. And so I think we we can communicate a lot through nerdy scholarly ways, I think, about race <laughs> and ethnicity. Um, the other things that I think he does really well is he, because he's married to me and I am this very uh, strong talker about diversity issues all the time, he's able to even take our discussions back to his own economics group, right? And sort of making sure that other fields on our campus here at Duke are as representative and inclusive as possible. And so um, I think it's been really nice to sort of have us learn from each other on, you know, what white people sort of think about when it comes to race relations versus what racial and ethnic and people of color sort of think about with race relations, because we really need these conversations to be open and dual sided in order for any progress and change to be made. Totally agree with that. And it's, it is great that you can do that at home, but you can also support each other in work and learn from each other and that your, your groups, um, your work groups can learn from each other and cross. So that is a fantastic way to make change in this world. And I love that about you guys. Um, one of the other things that we want to circle back on your family is you posted a, an article on Vox.com called Many Interracial Couples Know Exactly What Meghan Markle Went Through. And coming off of the conversation with Oprah, um, it was so timely and perfect. And I'd love for you to expand on, number one, what I think is so crazy interesting is how you and your family align with uh, Meghan and Harry. And then just what your thoughts on that whole situation is, if you don't mind. Yeah. So, I mean, first, Megan Markle, I'm sure many of you know this listening to this right now. She's biracial, black, white, just like I am. She's also lighter skinned, although I would say looks more Afrocentric than I do. Um, her first kid was named Archie and my first kid, although a canine child, um, also named Archie. So he's a little pit bull that we love at home. Um, we have the same baby crib. We uh, they ended up in California. I'm from California. So we just have a lot of uh, similarities and we both married very white men. Um, right, so right. Granted, I don't have access to royal money or castles or things like that. So we, <laughs> we diverge there. But what was really striking to me in that interview and what kind of prompted me to write that article is the fact that she came out um, and said the fact that the royal family was questioning what color of skin Archie was going to have before Archie was even born. Right. right. So these issues of colorism and 
the bias that the royal family had that we see across the world, right? It's not something we just see in the UK. The US has huge issues with colorism. Um, and I've been asked myself, you know, how dark are my twins going to be or how light are my twins going to be? And I just, I'm very floored by those questions. So I think that resonated with me personally because it shouldn't matter what they look like. It should matter that they're healthy and that everyone stays healthy through pregnancy. Um, so that's really what sort of sparked my interest and desire and wanting to write a piece on that interview. Yeah. And I think one of the words that came up, there's a couple, um, one of the words that came up in your article that caused me to pause, um, was when white people visually categorize racially ambiguous people. So that's what you're talking about with colorism. And I've done, um, a a few things recently on colorism and learning more about it and, uh, realizing that my children who are also very light presenting biracial young adults, um, have probably faced that, benefited from it, and also found that they didn't know where they belonged because of it, you know? And so I thought the word visually categorizing was really um, an interesting term. Is there, can you define that a little bit better? Yeah. I mean, so I think a lot of psychologists would use a term, it's very nerdy, called hypodescent. And so when you see someone who's kind of a lighter skinned minority, you kind of can't tell what race they are. Uh, white perceivers, so white people on average, tend to be more likely to see that person as darker than they actually are, um, or as more black in this case. Um, colorism as a term overall, though, is really just this preference we have as a society for lighter skinned people, right? So that benefit that you're saying your kids may have faced there. But our default approach to life as humans is to socially categorize people as quickly as possible. Mm -hmm. Our worlds are much too socially complex for us to not categorize each other. Um, And when we are encountering someone who we can't quite tell what race they are or whatever the case may be, we use shortcuts or heuristics, Mm -hmm. right? To sort of figure out, well, they talk like this or they wear clothes like that or they ordered X at this restaurant. We look for cues all the time in order to put people into boxes. Um, It's how we learn language. It's the same way. We learn through categories that way on what sounds sound similar to each other. So this is just how our brains are programmed. Um, But for the biracial and mixed race community, that often leads to inaccurate ways of categorizing Mm -hmm. people. Right. No, it absolutely does. And there is always that, you know, get to know the person, the person behind the skin. There's so much to people that that it is unfortunate that we get stuck on that categorization right away. Um, The other word that I found really interesting is polarity. And you wrote, a polarity is the word Markle used to describe the distinctive narratives created, a hero versus a villain, being white versus being black while being royal. Um, That obviously happens as well in our society, not only in the UK. Um, And so I'm just kind of wondering, what does, how does that look? Here. Yeah, I think this this white black binary. I think a big bias in psychology research overall is we focus a lot on biracial black white experiences, right. but there are many different types of mixed race individuals, right? And I think one reason why we focus so much on black white encounters, black white interracial relationships, is because of at least the U.S. focus on our history linked to slavery. Um, the U.K. has links to slavery in other ways. Um, it was clearly a different history there, but the The polarity that she brought up in comparing herself to Kate Middleton, I just thought was very striking in her interview as well to really show how much she was being colored by the royal family and by the media and the UK, how everything she did was supposedly wrong or horrible. Um, But Kate Middleton would do the exact same things and be praised by it from those same exact media sources. And so 
you find the way that skin tone um, just ends up impacting your treatment, which is ultimately what led to Megan and Harry deciding that they needed to leave that environment in order to protect themselves and to protect their, their kids. Yep, absolutely. So thank you for that. So when you talk about um, what you do, can you talk to us a little bit about what you do at Duke? Um, obviously, being an assistant professor is a huge role, but you also do a lot of other work around um, the biracial identity and experiences. And so how does that translate to not only being a professor, but you know, beyond that? Yeah. So um, at Duke, this is my fifth year at Duke. So I've been here a couple of years now. Um, I run the Duke Identity and Diversity Lab, which is my favorite place on campus, selfishly. Um, we have <laughs> 20 undergrads who work in our lab from every single background or identity you could imagine. Amazing grad students and postdocs. I have a full-time lab manager who helps me manage everything. And really from a research side on campus, we're studying all the things we've been talking about today. Uh, we bring in families from the community. We've been running these things on online on Zoom due to COVID, of course, this last course, year. Right. Um, but we really love connecting with community members, really trying to understand what it's like to be a person of color or these intersecting identities with race and gender are some new directions we're going in our lab. Um, in addition to research, though, I love teaching. I love working with undergrads in the classroom. And I think the teaching component of being a professor is often undersold because you have so much power to change attitudes in your classroom. Right. And so I love teaching what I teach here at Duke. I teach a social identities course. I teach a social psychology course that really just teaches people um, how to um, question the fact that they actually have free will, uh, what kinds of contexts are shifting their behavior. So my goal as an instructor and as a researcher is to really just get people to think a little more critically about all of their choices and decisions. Which is the thing that's going to make the most impact in our in our country for sure is being able to think differently, more creatively, more critically, and even just more openly. And the way to do that is through education for sure. And I want to take a moment to thank every one of our educators from, you know, college level and all the way down to our, our little preschoolers, because each of you guys bring so much um, possibility to to us and, and you're taking care of our kids young or not, you know, young or old, they're still our children and we appreciate it. So thank you for, for all you do there. I really appreciate that. Um, I think, you know, as we kind of wrap up and think about um, what the message is that people should be taking away from this, we've, we, gosh, you've covered so many great pieces of information. A lot of the people that are women w listening are women who are moms of biracial children or, soon to be moms or thinking about it, or they have had children like mine that are, you know, in their twenties and they're looking back saying, Hmm, you know, what could I have done differently? Or congratulations, I did it as best as I could. What would be kind of the message that you would send or give to, to these women who have biracial children to care for? Um, just kind of as that takeaway for us. Yeah, I think the the main thing I would say is there's no universal recipe on how to do it. I think a lot of parents are expecting there to be this one size fits all approach to raising mixed race kids, but depending on what your own racial or ethnic backgrounds are, the neighborhood you're in, the school they attend, there's just so many factors that can shift what identities mean something more or less to your own child. And so my biggest piece of advice is to just be open and also to be open that if your child ends up wanting to identify differently than you want them to, I realize that's a huge, huge struggle point for a lot of parents, particularly parents of color raising mixed race kids. 
um, that can be a difficult conversation to process. But kids' identities are changing all the time across development. And really what most research would suggest is that as long as your kid feels supported and loved and their ability to choose their identity to a certain extent, of course, this intersects with how you may look and how you're treated by society, that's what leads to more positive outcomes for biracial youth. So um, try and stay honest and open, uh, but know that what one mixed race parent does does not necessarily apply to another. I agree with that. And you know what? It, it doesn't in any parenting situation. There's a there's a book, but there's not a book that's made specifically for your situation. But in this, it's even more critical um, to, to let your child kind of lead that, that direction in that conversation. So thank you for that. So is there anything else that we want to cover? I definitely want you to share um, where people can find you and read your articles and kind of stay in touch with you as you continue doing this good work and as you have these beautiful babies. Um, So how can we find you? Uh, So I'm on Twitter for anyone who wants to follow me on Twitter. I'm at Sarah E. Gaither. Uh, So I post all of our labs, kind of published findings, uh, lab celebration moments from our undergrads all the way through our grad students and postdocs. Um, So do find me on Twitter. We also have a lab Facebook page in case Facebook is more your social media of choice. So you can Google the Duke Identity Diversity Lab and should be able to find us there. We also post all of our um, articles um, free of charge to access through that as well. Um, Or we have a plain old website. So you can Google our website at Duke. (laughs) Um, And we do post PDFs to our articles, links to all of the social media stuff that our lab does um, are also available there as well. So um, yeah, hope you see me online soon. You're easy to find. So, well, thank you, Sarah, for joining. And for anybody out there that wants to learn more, um, I'm also posting links to Sarah's articles as I find them and read them um, on my website, which is togetherwelovewithjoangreen.com, as well as you can follow me on Instagram at togetherwelove.jmg. And certainly you can DM me if you have any questions, um, and I would be happy to give you direction to to connect with Sarah in in the future. So Sarah, thank you so much. We are definitely praying for you and, and hoping that you stay healthy and your babies are healthy and safe. And also looking forward to following your journey and connecting with you after you've had these beautiful children. But Thank you so much for your time today. Really Thanks appreciate so it. Thank you so much for having all three of us, I guess, in that sense on your show. Oh, absolutely. I've never interviewed three people at one time. Look at that. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Sarah, take care. And we'll talk to you guys again soon. Thanks. Mm-hmm. Thank you for listening to another episode of Navigating Two Worlds. And now here are a few of the takeaways from our conversation with Dr. Sarah Gaither. One, Race is a powerful indicator and predictor of how people are treated. Biracial people who have the privilege of looking white passing also have the ability to speak up for those who don't have a voice. It's really incredible to know that being biracial often comes with such a sense of empowerment. Two, as monoracial person raising a mixed child, it is important that we don't raise them to be colorblind. On the surface, teaching our kids to treat everyone the same or equally seems positive, but you are then directly overlooking systemic racism or any of the other isms in our society. Helping them think in biracial terms also teaches them to become flexible thinkers, which is a strength and a benefit of coming from a diverse environment. Three, there is no universal recipe for raising biracial children, but a few things that Dr. Gaither recommends are to be open, 
to be open to how your child chooses their identity, even if it is not what you would want them to choose. And to keep in mind that positive outcomes for children are most frequently tied back to a supportive, loving environment. And four, often biracial and mixed race people are categorized mistakenly. This is called visual categorization, since we may not be sure of their race. Our default is to use cues that help us socially categorize others quickly, sort of like putting them in a box, because our brains are programmed to make this micro-determination. This is something we want to be aware of and try to avoid as often as possible. And finally, leading with love, um, creating a family environment that is safe, and having conversations with those around you to gain more and more information and educate yourselves are all important things to do as well. So I hope you enjoyed our time together. If you want to learn more and listen to more episodes of Navigating Two Worlds, you can find us um, via Apple Podcasts, as you know, um, also through our website at togetherwelovewithjoangreen.com and on Instagram at togetherwelove.jmg. Thanks for joining and we'll talk again soon.